Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Barbaric attacks. Horror at Russia's indiscriminate attacks on Ukraine as demands for justice grow. We're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin. As Russia changes its top commander for Ukraine and its strategy, can Putin be stopped? I'll speak to White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and former CIA Director General David Petraeus next. And refugee crisis. As millions flee the violence in Ukraine, the world comes together to help. An ambitious new pledge for Ukraine's refugees. In an exclusive joint interview with European Union Chief Ursula von der Leyen, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and Global Citizen CEO Hugh Evans. Plus, why they fight. Across Ukraine, reminders of old Russian repression are fueling today's fight. We understand the danger that may happen with us if Putin wins. What Ukrainians remember and how it's driving their fight. My special report from Ukraine ahead. Well, I'm Jake Tapper in Lviv, Ukraine. Welcome to State of the Union. Ukrainians on the ground are bracing for a brutal new phase in the war. If passed is prologue, it will bring even more attacks on civilians because after his army faced defeat in the Battle of Kyiv, Russian President Vladimir Putin has appointed a new commander to fight his war in Ukraine, General Alexander Dvornikov. Dvornikov is known for leading ruthless attacks on civilian neighborhoods in Syria in 2016. This move is part of a change in strategy as Russians refocus their attention on eastern Ukraine. You can see here images of an eight-mile-long military convoy positioned to the east of Kharkiv. It's difficult to process the prospect of even more brutality after the massacre in Bucha and the attack Friday on the Kramatorsk train station, which killed at least 50 people trying to leave the region, including children. Yesterday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who made a surprise visit to Kyiv. Zelensky is continuing to call on the West to do more to help drive back Putin, especially given the scale of the anticipated battle in the East. Prime Minister Johnson pledged more military equipment for Ukraine, including 800 next-generation light anti-tank weapons and Javelin anti-tank missiles, Starstreak anti-aircraft missiles, and other aids such as body armor, helmets, and night vision goggles. Joining us now to discuss, President Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Uh, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. So at least 52 civilians, including children, were killed Friday after that Russian missile strike on the Kramatorsk railway station, packed with evacuees in eastern Ukraine, trying to flee, trying to get here to where I am in Lviv. Ukrainian officials say Russia used banned cluster munitions in that strike. Does that attack, and do the continued seemingly deliberate targeting of civilians by Russia, does all of that constitute war crimes? It absolutely constitutes war crimes. Uh, In fact, President Biden was well out in front of most of the world in declaring that what Russia was doing and what Vladimir Putin was authorizing here were war crimes. And 
Uh, we have seen that in Kramatorsk. We have seen that in Bucha. We have seen that in other parts of Ukraine. The systematic targeting of civilians, the grisly murder of innocent people, the brutality, the depravity. Uh, and that is why we are working so hard, not just on long-term accountability, but in the short term, rushing weapons supplies to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves against Russian attacks and liberate towns like Bucha uh, from the grip of Russian brutality. In addition to the images of slaughter and depravity from Bucha, we're also seeing entire civilian neighborhoods uh, wiped off the face of the earth. Now, the United Nations defies, defines genocide as, quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, including, quote, killing members of the group, and quote, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. I understand that this is up to authorities and there was, there was a, a process in place. But in your opinion, how is this not genocide? Look, in my opinion, the label is less important than the fact that these acts are cruel and criminal and wrong and evil and need to be responded to decisively. And that is what we are doing. And we're doing that not just by supporting international investigations and gathering evidence to hold the perpetrators all the way to the highest levels accountable. We're doing it by providing sophisticated weapons to the Ukrainians that are making a major difference on the battlefield. You mentioned in your opening comments that Ukraine won the Battle of Kiev. Russia lost the Battle of Kiev. Russia retreated. And they did so because they faced a brave and stiff Ukrainian resistance. But that resistance was armed with American weapons and Western weapons that the United States of America delivered. And we are proud of that. We will continue to do that. Uh, and we will continue to take every step we possibly can to help the Ukrainians succeed on the battlefield and to improve their position at the negotiating table and to make the Russians pay uh, also through in increasing costs of sanctions uh, for what they are doing to the people of Ukraine. Let me ask you a more theoretical question here, Jake, because I'm not advocating for any specific action one way or another, but I do have to wonder how the international community, including the U.S., decides what kind of wholesale killing necessitates direct military in intervention and what kind doesn't. Because every year on International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I read these statements from world leaders that say never again. What exactly are they saying never again to? Well, the United States and the international community are not going to stand by while Russia does what it does. And we haven't stood by. In fact, before this war even began, we indicated that Russia was planning uh, to engage in acts of brutality against civilians. We declassified intelligence that this is not just the random acts of soldiers or units. This is an orchestrated plot from the Kremlin. And even before the war began, we flowed hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment just last year to the Ukrainians to be able to defend themselves and to beat the Russians back. And we're continuing to do that. The speed, scale, scope of the effort to arm and equip the Ukrainians uh, is unprecedented in recent memory. And it is something that uh, the United States has led the effort to do. And the size and impact of the sanctions on a major economy like Russia is likewise unprecedented. So this is not a story of anyone standing by. We are taking aggressive action 
in an effort to both help the Ukrainians succeed on the battlefield and help the Ukrainians have the best possible position at the negotiating table. We will continue to do that. We will continue to rally the world in that regard. Uh, and the United States will play the key role it has played thus far in the days and weeks ahead. CNN has learned that Putin has appointed a new military commander to oversee this Russian attack and invasion on Ukraine, General Alexander Dvornikov. Dvornikov is known for his brutality when he led Russia's intervention in Syria. Um, what does his appointment tell you about Putin's strategy moving forward? Well, first, no appointment of any general can erase the fact that Russia has already faced a strategic failure in Ukraine. They thought that they were going to be able to conquer the capital city and take other major cities with little resistance, that they'd in fact be welcomed with open arms. And what we have learned in the first several weeks of this war is that Ukraine will never be subjugated to Russia. It doesn't matter which general President Putin tries to appoint. But as you noted, uh, this particular general has a resume that includes a brutality against civilians in other theaters in Syria. And we can expect more of the same in this theater. But it's not something that we need to anticipate looking forward. As you've noted, we've already seen it and we can expect more of it. Uh, this general will just be another author uh, of crimes and brutality against uh, Ukrainian uh, civilians. And the United States, as I said before, uh, is determined to do all that we can to support the Ukrainians as they resist him and they resist the forces that he commands. So this week, the European Union announced that, uh, a ban on all Russian coal imports. Uh, some countries, some allies, such as Poland, uh, just a few miles away, and Lithuania, uh, they're pushing to go further and ban not just uh, coal, but also Russian oil and Russian natural gas. Germany, of course, uh, says it's going to take time to phase out the reliance on Russian energy. Can the sanctions campaign against Russia ever truly be effective, ever truly deter Putin, as long as Putin is making hundreds of billions of dollars from its energy sector. Well, first, Jake, as you know, President Biden uh, issued an executive order banning all Russian oil, gas and coal from the United States. The United States will not contribute uh, one dollar uh, from those three imports to the Russian war machine. When he did so, he also noted uh, that we are in a privileged position. We are a net energy exporter. We can absorb the cost of that. Uh, it is a different um, fact for the Europeans uh, who are far more reliant on Russian energy than the United States is. And so we're working overtime to wean Europe off of Russian energy. We are surging exports of U.S. liquefied natural gas to Europe so that they can reduce their reliance on Russian gas. And we're taking steps to work with them to reduce reliance on Russian oil as well. President Biden has been in direct contact with European leaders on this issue. We are looking to continue to make progress on it. But in the meantime, we should not underestimate the impact of the sanctions that have already been imposed to include a double digit hit to Russian GDP this year and to include uh, Russia falling out of the ranks of the world's major economies by the end of this year. So the pain is real. The impact is real. But yes, there's always more that uh, we can do. And as we announced this past week, we are continuing to try to ratchet up the pressure on the Russian economy. Jake, a lot of us covering this war are keeping an eye on the Black Sea. 
A week ago, the British Minister of Defense sounded the alarm about Russian mines that are drifting in the Black Sea, uh, ones that NATO countries, Romania and Turkey, had to detonate or neutralize to make sure that those Russian mines didn't kill Romanians or Turks. Um, what would NATO do if one of those Russian mines kills innocent people from NATO countries? Well, President Biden has been absolutely clear from before this conflict began that the United States is prepared to work with our allies to defend every inch of NATO territory. That means every inch, including if mines showed up in a Romanian harbor or a Turkish harbor uh, and caused damage or loss of life. We would be prepared to respond forcefully alongside our allies and partners and uh, to take action to ensure that Russia was held, held accountable for it. In addition, I might point out uh, that we have been working with our partners to try to provide the Ukrainians uh, with coastal defense systems that they can use to neutralize the threat from the Russians in the Black Sea. Uh, and you've just heard from the British who have a particular version uh, of a coastal defense system that they intend to supply that uh, to the Ukrainians. That's something that we, the United States, work closely with the British on, and it will help the Ukrainians in their fight. Jake Sullivan, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Coming up, could the U.S. be doing anything differently to end the war in Ukraine? We're going to talk to Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, about that. Plus, also, the latest from the January 6th committee on which she serves. That's next. Plus, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be here on Russia's brutality and dealing with the humanitarian crisis. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm in Lviv, Ukraine. Ukrainian officials are still counting the bodies in northern Ukraine as we learn horrifying new claims about Russian torture of civilians. But what can be done to stop Vladimir Putin's forces? Joining us now, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming. She's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I, you just heard my conversation with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Were you satisfied with what you heard? What might you be doing differently right now? Well, thanks for having me, Jake. No, uh, I wasn't satisfied with what I heard. I think that uh, it's crucially important that the United States be clear that we are absolutely committed to Zelensky's victory. Uh, we should not be talking about, as, as Jake Sullivan did just now, improving Zelensky's position at the negotiating table. Um, this is about uh, defeating Russian forces in Ukraine. It's about much more than Ukraine. Uh, we ought to be moving much faster, much more quickly, recognizing that, that the Ukrainians now, given what they've been able to do and, and how long they've been able to fight and what they've been able to uh, inflict upon the Russian forces, uh, they need advanced weaponry. We need to be thinking about providing them with, uh, with tanks, uh, with artillery, uh, with armored vehicles. We need to be doing much more, more quickly. And there should be no question that, that this is about, uh, you know, getting to a negotiation or pressuring Zelensky to negotiate. This is about defeating Russian forces in Ukraine. So you, you would like to see more offensive weapons, tanks and planes, as opposed to missile defense systems, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, which is what the U.K. and U.S. have focused a lot of attention on. Look, I think we need to do both. I think we need to do everything that, that you know, uh, Zelensky says he needs at this point, uh, given the uh, just unbelievable um, battle that they have put up, uh, the extent to which the Ukrainians have demonstrated that they are... Um, 
not going to be in a position where uh, they allow the Russian forces to make the kinds of gains Putin thought he would be making. Uh, I think it's really important for us uh, to be very clear with respect both to the kinds of, of advanced weaponry, the kinds of offensive weaponry we need to be providing them, uh, also in terms of what's happening uh, in the Black Sea, the Sea of Azov. Um, you know, the United States has a right to be there. It's international waters. We ought to be doing much more to help keep the shipping lanes open to ensure that the Ukrainians are not continuing to suffer from the kind of economic blockade uh, that the Russians are attempting to impose now. Uh, so I think that there, there are a whole range of additional things we could be doing and, and should be doing uh, immediately. Let's turn to that horrific missile strike on the Ukrainian train station. Uh, more than 50 people, including five children, uh, killed. They were just trying to flee. Uh, right. They're trying to flee the war and come here to Lviv, where I am. Uh, they were trying to escape, and they were targeted and killed. What was your reaction when you saw the new images? Um, are they war crimes? Do you consider this all genocide? I think this clearly uh, is genocide. Uh, I think that uh, you asked exactly the right questions. I think that, um, that Europe needs to understand and grapple with the fact that you've got a genocidal campaign, uh, the first, the first uh, kind of horrific genocidal campaign that that we've seen uh, certainly in, in recent decades. Uh, I think that, that also the Europeans need to understand that, that they're funding that genocidal campaign. I understand the economic consequences to countries in Western Europe uh, if they were to impose the kind of oil and gas embargo that the U.S. has imposed against Russian oil and gas, but they need to do it. And, and we need to do everything we can to increase our own domestic production, to help make sure that we can supply them with as much as possible but they need to understand that every single time, every single day that they are continuing to import Russian oil and gas, they're funding Putin's genocide in Ukraine. Do you think that there is a point at which the United States and NATO countries, seeing what's happened here, need to consider direct military intervention? I think that uh, the Ukrainians have demonstrated uh, an incredible ability and courage and bravery, uh, and that what we need to be doing right now is doing much more, much faster to provide them with the equipment that they need. I think that we also have to understand and recognize this isn't just about Ukraine. Putin has made clear uh, his desire to go farther. He's made clear that he's got ambitions with respect to uh, the Baltics, with respect to uh, countries like Moldova. And I think the West and NATO has got to understand that, um, that, that Putin's defeat in Ukraine is a fundamental national security interest for us. Uh, that does not mean in the near term, it does not mean calling for U.S. forces uh, on the ground in Ukraine, but what it does mean is ensuring that we're providing the Ukrainians every single thing they need, everything they ask for. We shouldn't be in a position, for example, where uh, you know, we're saying we don't believe, as our Pentagon has said, they don't believe that the Ukrainians need the MiGs. Um, if the Ukrainians uh, are asking us for weaponry, need, we need to make sure that we're doing everything possible to get it to them. President Zelensky has posed some um, baffling uh, and challenging existential questions about the existence of the United Nations, the United Nations Security Council, even NATO. These organizations established uh, many in the, in the wake of World War II to make sure that what happened in World War II doesn't happen again. And he's been questioning whether or not they actually are effective in any way. Uh, what, what have been your thoughts on that? Well, I think you have to make a very clear distinction between NATO, which I think is the most effective and successful 
military alliance in the history, uh, in history period, um, and the United Nations, which I think has, has um, caused real questions about whether or not um, you know, it can accomplish or is accomplishing any of the objectives for which it was created. Uh, when you have Russia sitting on the Security Council, when you have nations uh, on the Human Rights Council, and I, I know Russia has been, been recently removed, but I think the United Nations, um, I think that it, it has demonstrated that it is not the kind of effective entity people hoped it would be when it was created. I think NATO is very different. NATO uh, has now been unified. NATO has now um, worked uh, to, to make sure that, that we are coming to the defense uh, of, of our NATO allies and that we're doing everything that we can do. Uh, we need to do more, as I said, to help to support uh, Ukraine and help to support the Ukrainian people. Uh, there are, are many ways that one can fight to, to protect democracy. Uh, let's turn from uh, the military way it's being fought here uh, to the efforts to protect democracy in the United States. You're the vice chair of the January 6th committee. The New York Times uh, reporting this morning that your committee has concluded uh, that you have enough evidence to make a criminal referral for President Trump to the Justice Department for obstructing an official proceeding and for conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, is that true? Do you have enough evidence to refer Trump for criminal charges? Well, we have not made a decision about referrals uh, on the committee. I think that it is absolutely the case. It's absolutely clear that um, what President Trump uh, was doing, uh, what, what a number of people around him were doing, that they knew it was unlawful. They did it anyway. I think you certainly saw that in the decision uh, that was issued by Judge Carter a few weeks ago. Uh, where he concluded that uh, it was more likely than not that the President of the United States was engaged uh, uh, in criminal activity. Uh, I think what we have seen is a massive and well-organized and well-planned uh, effort that used multiple tools to try to overturn an election. Uh, you've seen just in the last few days uh, a, a plea agreement from one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, which which lays out and really chilling detail the extent to which violence was planned, um, the extent to which uh, the message that went out on December 19th about the planning, about the rally in Washington, and don't forget, Donald Trump tweeted out that message, be, be there, be wild, um, that the day after that message, uh, the organization and the planning started, and, and that they understood, that they knew that they were going to attempt to use violence to try to stop the transfer of power. That is the, the definition of an insurrection, mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it is absolutely chilling. And just to be clear, you've seen this evidence and you believe President Trump committed these two crimes. Uh, I, what I've just quoted to you is a public document. It is the plea agreement in the, the Donahoe case. Uh, everybody can look at it. I, I would highly recommend everybody does look at it. It's the statement of offense in that plea agreement. Uh, the committee has uh, obviously been focused very much, has got a, a tremendous amount of testimony and documents um, that I think very, very clearly demonstrate the extent of the planning and the organization and the objective, uh, and, and the objective was absolutely to try to stop the count of electoral votes, to try to interfere with that official proceeding. And it's absolutely clear that they knew what they were doing was wrong, they knew that it was unlawful, and they did it anyway. There's a dispute on your committee, as I don't need to tell you. Some people feel like a referral, which actually has no uh, legal weight, uh, would only taint the process under which uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland might act. Uh, some feel 
that that's the wrong argument, that right is right, and, and the co committee has the evidence it has. But where do you come down? There's not really a dispute on the committee. Um, the committee is, is uh, working uh, in a really collaborative way to discuss these issues, uh, as we are with all of the issues we're addressing, um, and, and we'll continue to work together to do so. So I, I wouldn't characterize there uh, as being a dispute on the committee. I think that um, it, is, it is the single most collaborative committee on which I've ever served. Uh, I'm very proud of the bipartisan way in which we're operating. And I'm confident that we will we will work to come to agreement on uh, on all of the issues that we're facing. So I wouldn't say that it's accurate right now to say that there's a dispute on this issue. Former President Trump's uh, daughter and senior advisor Ivanka Trump uh, testified in front of your committee for eight hours this week. Was her testimony helpful? Did she shed any new light on those crucial hours while the attack was underway? Certainly her testimony was helpful, uh, as has been the testimony of many hundreds of others who have appeared in front of the committee. Uh, I, and I would just note that, that it really um, tells you why uh, the fact that Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro have completely refused to cooperate, the committee, cooperate with the committee, why that was, uh, is so clearly contemptuous, why we were right to move contempt charges against both of them. Um, it is, it is, uh, there's absolutely no, no privilege in this country that is uh, an absolute uh, blanket immunity from having to come and testify, having to come and talk to a congressional committee, particularly under these circumstances. Uh, and so the committee is going to continue to uh, work to get evidence and testimony. And again, we are uh, incredibly grateful. I've been incredibly grateful and, and frankly moved by um, the, the many, many people who have come before us because they know it's their patriotic responsibility and duty to tell us about what happened and to make sure that it never happens again. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy uh, is in the region. I think he's in Poland. Uh, and He just issued a statement in, in support of democracy and, and uh, the individuals fighting for a free and democratic Ukraine. And I'm just wondering if you feel that there's any disconnect there, given the fact that uh, he has not exactly been supportive of your efforts to get to the bottom of the attempt uh, to overturn the election in the United States. Well, what I would say is that what's happening today in Ukraine is a reminder that um, democracy is fragile, that democracy must be defended, uh, and that each one of us in a position to do so has an obligation to do so. Clearly, I think Leader McCarthy uh, failed to do that, failed to put his oath to the Constitution ahead of his own um, personal political gains. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, each one of us is responsible for our own actions and activity. But, but if we don't stand for our Constitution, if we don't stand for democracy, if we don't stand for freedom, uh, if, we, if we forget that our oath to our Constitution is an oath to a document, it's not an oath to uh, an individual, uh, we've got to always remember that or, or our democracy is in peril. All right. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jake. Good to be with you. Thank you. Millions of refugees have escaped Ukraine this week in a new effort to help meet the needs that they have both outside Ukraine and inside. The head of the EU and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will join us next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper, live in Lviv, Ukraine. This weekend, world leaders, celebrities, and artists came together 
to try to help millions of refugees from Ukraine and in Ukraine through Global Citizens Stand Up for Ukraine Summit. Earlier, I spoke with leaders of the summit. Joining me now, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and Global Citizen co-founder Hugh Evans. Thanks one and all for being here. Um, Hugh, let me start with you. You organized this global campaign to help the, the millions of Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes because of this horrific war. How much money did this event raise and, and how is it going to be used? Well, thank you, Jake, so much for having us. And I should start by saying this was truly a team effort. We had phenomenal people from around the world, including leaders in the music industry, that came together to really rally the world, to call on world leaders to commit billions of dollars for refugee relief. And I'm so proud today to say that the pledging event secured over 10.1 billion US dollars in commitments, including $4.6 billion in cash grants that will support the people of Ukraine as well as those who've had to flee and become refugees in the surrounding areas. This is going to provide access to food security, clean drinking water, housing, education, and ultimately those provisions that those who've had to flee this devastating conflict need most. Well, I, I've met some of these displaced people, and they, they, certainly, they certainly can use uh, that assistance. Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, Canada, as I don't need to tell you, has the third largest Ukrainian population in the world, behind only Ukraine and Russia. Do you think Canada feels a special responsibility to resettle as many refugees as it can because of that? And how many have you taken in so far? How many do you expect total? Uh, Canada has always been a country to welcome in refugees. I'm standing, Jake, in front of uh, a, a, I'm in a museum, but it's a Ukrainian church that was built in the Canadian prairies over 100 years ago. So we have deep connections to Ukraine, and uh, that's why we've created uh, rapid pathways for people to come from Europe or directly from Ukraine uh, to Canada, either permanently or for just a few years with work visas, with, uh, with uh, uh, student visas that are going to allow them uh, to get their feet back under them uh, to contribute to the rebuilding of Ukraine once this war is over and won. And that is our focus as well, making sure that Putin loses this war uh, that is completely irresponsible, completely mistaken, and having an impact not just on Ukraine, but around the world. And how many how many uh, refugees do you think you can take in uh, from Ukraine? Uh, we, we've already taken in uh, over fourteen thousand, and we're continuing to do many, many more. There, the number of Canadians, of Ukrainian Canadians, Canadians of all backgrounds, who are uh, opening their homes, their communities to welcome in people fleeing uh, the violence. When I was in Warsaw a few weeks ago, I heard from people who don't want to go too far uh, from their husbands, their 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 uh, families back in Ukraine, uh, but are also looking at if this does go on as long as it might, uh, they need solace and, and secure place to go. And Canada will always be there for uh, as many as choose to come to Canada. President von der Leyen, uh, Europe, as you know, has already taken in more than 4 million Ukrainian refugees. And this, this crisis we know could potentially drag on for years. Uh, does the European Union have a plan in place to house and care for all these people for however long might be necessary? Yes, absolutely. It is um, amazing to see uh, the open hearts and the open doors of the European people, mainly in the frontline uh, countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechia, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, just to name a few. 
and um, they are very much willing to take these refugees in, um, more than four million. Therefore, this pledging event today was so important. But of course, there are funds from the European Union, structural funds, 17 billion that are there to accommodate these more than four million refugees. Yesterday, I was in Kiev. Um, I saw President Zelensky, and I promised to him that we're going to take good care of the refugees till they can return safely home. That is very important to rebuild their country. But there are also the six and a half million internally displaced people in Ukraine who urgently need help. And I'm very grateful that the pledging event today was also organized for them because they need support through the um, Ukrainian authorities. And I'm very glad 1.8 billion euros will go to Ukraine refugees in Ukraine. So this is very important for the Ukrainian authorities too. Uh, and President von der Leyen, you made a point of visiting Bucha this week uh, to see the, the aftermath of the atrocities firsthand there. You also met with President Zelensky in Kyiv. He told you uh, that what uh, the Europeans are doing is, quote, not enough. Well, what did you say to him? And, and what you, did what you saw in Bucha drive home the need for, for Europe to do more, to do everything in its power to help Ukraine? Yes. President Zelensky was very grateful what, for what has happened already, what we have done already. But he's right. This war is going on. We have to do more. And be it sanctions on Russia. And I'm very grateful that we have so many partners, Canada, for example, strongly supporting us with the sanctions against Russia to really dry out Putin's war chest. We have to deliver arms, weapons, so that the Ukrainian people can defend themselves. It's really urgent right now. A lot has been done, but more has to be done. As I said, we have to support uh, the refugees in Ukraine, but also very important, we have to financially support Ukraine. Yesterday, I could deliver 1 billion euros directly for the Ukrainian government, but more, of course, has to uh, come there too. So whatever is necessary um, is being done, and we know we are in for long haul here um, to fight uh, Putin's aggression, to defend the integrity and uh, sovereignty of Ukraine, but also afterwards, after that war, when Ukraine will have won that war, to reconstruct Ukraine and rebuild this country. Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, you've seen the horrific images coming out of Bucha and other Ukrainian towns. You know that on Friday, a, a Russian missile strike uh, on that railway station in eastern Ukraine killed dozens of civilians who were just trying to escape, just trying to get to where I am in Lviv. Uh, President Zelensky says Russia is committing genocide here in Ukraine. Do you agree? The images are horrific. The stories we're hearing, and we have been hearing uh, from Ukrainian Canadians, but through social media as well, of what's going on. It is clear uh, that Putin is systematically targeting uh, civilians, whether it's hospitals or train stations or maternity wards. Um, this is one of the reasons why Canada was one of the first countries uh, to uh, call on the International Criminal Court uh, to look into Putin's war crimes. Uh, we're providing investigative support. We're uh, building up the case uh, for uh, people to recognize that not only was this a terrible mistake to violate the sovereignty of another country and create massive global instability that's impacting energy and food prices around the world, but it is also uh, a series of war crimes that Putin is deliberately committing that he needs to be held to account for. Is it genocide, though? 
uh, those are the things that will be determined. Obviously, the the messages we're seeing, the uh, the stories of what Russian soldiers are doing, not just the murder of civilians, but the systematic use of sexual violence and rape uh, to uh, destabilize and have the greatest negative impact on Ukrainian people as possible uh, is absolutely unforgivable and unacceptable. And that's why the global community is going to and is responding so strongly. President uh, von der Leyen, uh, you gave Zelensky a questionnaire to fill out in order to start the application process for Ukraine to join the EU. That's a process that typically takes years, as you know. Uh, you told him you think it could be, quote, a matter of, of weeks. How important is membership as Ukraine fights for its survival? Could Ukraine be part of the EU by the end of the year? And what would that do in terms of helping Ukraine defend itself? For Ukraine, uh, the most important thing is to decide themselves um, what they want to do in future and how they want to shape their country. And they want to join the European Union. This is normally a process over years indeed. And yesterday we did an important step forward. That is this questionnaire which forms the basis uh, for the information we have to then form an opinion whether I can, as a Commission President, recommend uh, the candidate status to the so-called council. So, sounds technical, but is a very important step forward. Yesterday, um, somebody told me, you know, when our soldiers are dying, um, I want them to know that their children will be free and be part of the European Union. So there's a lot of hope in Ukraine um, that they, they belong to our European family without any question. And therefore, they are in an extraordinary situation where we have to uh, take unusual steps. One thing is clear for me. After this war, when Ukraine will be rebuilt, when we support Ukraine in reconstructing this country, this will be accompanied by reforms. So it is an extraordinary way to shape the country and to go down the path towards the European Union. And uh, we've done an important step yesterday. Mr. Evans, uh, this does not obviously end with one big event. These refugees are going to need help for, for weeks and months, years to come. What can everyday people, our viewers right now, what can they do to help? Well, I firstly want to thank everyone who contributed to the pledging event today. To secure over $10.1 billion in commitments was extraordinary, including over $4.6 billion in direct grants for the Ukrainian people and for the refugees in the surrounding countries. Right now, we need citizens all around the world to use their voice and encourage world leaders to continue to step up because this is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you can make a donation, go to forukraine.com today and start making a donation on behalf of your family, your friends, your community. All of us can do something to support the people of Ukraine. All of us can stand up for Ukraine. Thanks to all three of you. Really appreciate your efforts. Congratulations on the successful fundraiser. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thank you, Thank Jake. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vladimir Putin has a new general to oversee his barbaric invasion of Ukraine. What can we learn from that? General David Petraeus on the latest next. As Russian troops roll their tanks to eastern Ukraine, Ukraine's foreign minister says in just days that area will resemble the front lines of World War II. 
Retired four-star general, former CIA director David Petraeus is here to help us understand this all. So, as General, thanks for joining us. A top Ukrainian military official said the Russians are making final preparations for what he called a massive breakthrough in eastern Ukraine. It seems, what, from what we understand, from what General Milley said, this land is more open, less wooded, which I guess would undermine the successful Ukrainian tactics for the Battle of Kiev, Kiev which, was, which were more guerrilla in tactics. What are you expecting next in the region? Well, it's going to be quite a fight. Uh, but Jake, let's review what happened uh, over really the course of this very quickly. Um, what we've seen uh, initially, the main effort was Kyiv. And so you saw the column that came down from there and another one that came over here. There were also cities up here, Chernihiv and Sumy. Uh, and essentially, the Ukrainians stopped them cold and then started to counterattack. And then the Russians withdrew all these forces like that. So that campaign is over. Uh, the Ukrainians won the battles of Kyiv, Chernihiv, and Sumy. They were also trying to get to Odessa. That's the major port on the Black Sea. They got stopped cold right at Mykolaiv, and now the Ukrainians are counterattacking down there. So the focus now is the Donbass, uh, and that is this area here. This is what was controlled originally by the separatists right here. Um, you still have the Battle of Mariupol going on. There are still three areas in which there is resistance that the Russians have to deal with. But once they deal with that, you'll see these forces come like this, and then you'll see the ones that are being pushed in to the east of Kharkiv and coming down here. Uh, these little salients that you can see, because what they want to do is to encircle, if they can, the Ukrainian forces that have been fighting along essentially the front lines of the Donbass, which is almost a World War I kind of situation with trenches. I've been there, I was there several years ago, and you're right, this is much more open uh, although there are some cities, and they are generally uh, road hubs as well. And by the way, this is Kramatorsk. This is where that terrible uh, bombing of the train station took place that you discussed earlier. Yeah. So that's what's coming. Now, and we saw this convoy. This has been laid out for everyone. Uh, again, satellites picked this up. They're moving south. Uh, so to come back to Donbass, what they're doing is they're, they're over here moving along like this, and they're coming south, and again, they're going to be pushed in from here. And of course, you have a new commander. Uh -huh. uh, you have General Dvornikov. He's known as the butcher of Syria for yeah, this me... brutal campaign that he prosecuted in Syria when he was the commander there in 2016. And what does it tell you that, uh, that Putin put General Alexander Dvornikov in charge of the invasion now? Not just, obviously, that, that the previous military uh, efforts failed, but does this mean that it's going to get even worse, even more brutal, even more uh, targeting of civilians? I fear that it may. Uh, again, the Russians were known in Syria basically for, quote, depopulating areas. That's what they did to Aleppo. That's what they did to other areas. Uh, and I think we can expect that. We saw, you know, the very first operation taken under him includes that terrible strike uh, on the rail station. So you're going to see the focus again. The focus is the southeast. Uh, they have said, you know, phase one is over, achieved all our objectives, which actually they withdrew from, again, the main effort originally, which was Kiev. They didn't topple the government, replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure. So now they're putting it all into the southeast. And what they'd like to do, of course, is by 9 May, they'd like to have a success so that when they celebrate World War II Victory Day, they can also say that they have now denazified the southeast part of Ukraine. That's all they really wanted to do all along. And again, they'd love to have an area that would be all of this right here, plus this ground link uh, to Crimea. Uh, and he could 
paint that as a, as a success, President Putin could. And again, you have this one general that will be in charge of all of this. So the first time you actually have one figure who is the overall commander. Now, he's been involved here, but now everyone else is stepping aside. He's in charge. And again, I think you can, you can expect more of what we have seen. The hallmark of the Russian forces so far has been indiscipline, not discipline. It has been violation uh, of the Geneva Convention and the land, law of land warfare and so forth. We've seen repeated mm-hmm. evidence of that. And that's what we're going to see more of, I fear, yeah. in the days and weeks that lie ahead. So we've got to do everything we can to provide everything yeah. as quickly as possible. General David Petraeus, thank you so much for helping us understand that better. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Some in the West are proposing that Ukraine concede the Donbass, the Eastern Territory, to Russia, so as to bring it into the bloodshed, to bring it into the war. But those experts may have lost sight of one key part of of what motivates Ukrainians. They know what and who they're fighting against. They know life under Russian repression. I want to warn you, some of the images we're about to bring you are graphic and disturbing. Only 25 years ago, here in Lviv, Ukraine, this statue, cast in bronze, was erected. A Ukrainian breaking free of Russian bondage. The inscription to the victims of communist crimes. The statue was built under the initiative of a former Soviet prisoner. And there are other such survivors still alive, still sharing their stories. Uh, but, but they were that small? A little, a little bit bigger. Miroslav Marinovich is vice rector of Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv and a former prisoner in a Soviet gulag in the Ural Mountains. We met up with him at Ukraine's National Museum and Memorial of Victims of Occupation Regimes, which highlights Polish, Nazi, and Soviet oppression. This is the place where the tragedy is concentrated. It's a very painful place. Tiny cement cells and tools of deliberate discomfort, even torture by the Soviets used against critics and human rights activists, such as Marinovich, who was held in a similar place. I was with one other prisoner. In the 1970s, he and other activists dared to document and publish Soviets' humanitarian violations in Ukraine, similar to what Putin is trying to prevent news and human rights organizations from doing today. Arrested, punished with maximum terms uh, as most dangerous state criminals. This is just because you detailed human rights abuses and wrote about it. That was your crime? Yes. Yes, it was the only crime of mine. And of course, the Soviet Union questioned everything we wrote. It denied any violations and we were treated as liars. Uh, and for that punished. Seven years of hard labor, followed by three more in exile in a small town in Kazakhstan for telling the truth about the brutality of the Kremlin. Mass killings, uh, mass torturing, awful information uh, war against local population. Now we see the same technique in the eastern of Ukraine. If Putin prevails, then the whole Ukraine will be uh, intimidated with awful uh, terror. So I'm, I'm very afraid of that. 
Faulkner once said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. The people of Ukraine, they don't have to imagine what life would be like under Russian rule, the oppression, the cruelty. They've already lived it. The cells that held dissidents and human rights activists, those cells are still here. Since 2005, Russia officially is the heir of the Soviet Union and views themselves as a continuation of the Soviet Union. The museum's historian, who curates cruelty for a living, has this warning for the world. We know from Ukrainian history about three genocides against the Ukrainian people, and history is repeating once again. Do you think the fact that Ukrainians like yourself have been through this, have survived it, have been strong enough to get here, uh, gives you, does that give you any hope that you'll be able to get through this? Uh, I'm absolutely sure that Ukraine will win this war, because we understand the danger that may happen with us uh, if Putin uh, wins. Marinovich warns he hears echoes, not only of Stalin in what Putin says, but of past world leaders who tried to appease Stalin, in the words of those who seek today to appease Putin. He was victorious, so the world decided, okay, for security reason, we would better preserve peace. But for us, it was like leaving seeds in the ground. And now we see that these seeds are blossoming again. Seeds of crimes, seeds of communist ideology, communist visions. That's why my appeal now to the world is, please do not commit the same mistake in order to preserve security, to leave these Putin's seeds in ground again. This is all real, and this is all present. At the museum, a picture of our local producer's grandfather was on the wall. He had been imprisoned for two years before being sent to a Soviet gulag for 25 years. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. I'll have more reporting from Ukraine over the next week. The news continues next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.